You're listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. And, uh, this passage um, is the stoning of Stephen. Stephen's an early church leader, and um, Stephen is the first martyr of the Christian faith, the first person that died for their faith in Jesus Christ. Now today, uh, you see multiple accounts on the news of ISIS, even just recently, although I don't believe they were Christians. I think 25 more uh, people were just killed yesterday. I mean, unreal the amount of martyrdom that's taking place in the, in, in the world today. Stephen, though, the first of the martyrs, and I want to focus today on sharing in the sufferings of God. And um, if you want to leave, you can still leave. Okay. Uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 54, the scripture says this. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Now, Stephen, uh, last week, Pastor Jesse shares this um, kind of this, I don't even want to call it a sermon. It's just this spontaneous recap of all of Old Testament biblical history. And he begins to rebuke the religious leaders of the day saying, you are not understanding the signs that are right in front of you that God, all of the Old Testament promises that God was going to send his son to the world, he's right in front of you. You killed him, you crucified him, he rose from the dead and you still missed it. He's right here and you missed it. And they get so upset at them because, as we know, the religious leaders of that day, the Pharisees and Sadducees, not only were they um, uh, astute in their learning, but they added to the Old Testament all of these rules and regulations and laws to the point where they couldn't even understand that the laws were to point them to the need of the lawgiver. That a law can never, legislation can never deal with the real root of the problem. The Old Testament laws and prophecies were supposed to show us our great need for a Savior. So Stephen rebukes them. They grind their teeth. Look at this, verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now this is like... He's almost insulting them. I mean, he's not, but he is. You know, they're like angry at him, and he's like, wait, I just saw heaven open up. Not only are you wrong, but here's Jesus right now at the right hand of God, and he's standing. And it says this, but they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. We saw that yesterday, a couple people at a 4th of July thing, when you see the kids, they close their ears and scream at the top of their lungs, right? This is what they're doing. They're like screaming at the top of their lungs, running towards him. They pull out these stones, watch this. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. And when he'd said this, he fell asleep. What? What a crazy chain of events in these six verses that Stephen goes from sharing this recap of what God's doing in human history to next thing you know, people are stoning him. He sees Jesus and begins to pray for them, Lord, let not their sins be held against them. And then he falls asleep. Now, what I want to challenge you with this morning is that this is not a metaphor. 
Sometimes we, we look at things that are beyond our level of experience and somebody shares them and we want to reduce this down to a metaphor and we don't really think Stephen really fell asleep. That's just kind of a calm, kind way of saying he, he, he died. Well, we don't really think that he saw Jesus, but you know he's just kind of had a hallucination or some sort of thing. But I want to challenge you that in the early church, there's this unique thing that we see in this passage, which is the overlap of the kingdom of God being both now and not yet. Let me make this very practical. Right now in your life, if you're a believer, there are parts of your life where you experience very close, intimate connection with your Savior. And there are other parts of your life where you feel very distant from God. Okay, I'm the only one, but that's all right. In your life, as a Christian, there is this simultaneous thing happening inside of you that if you're honest enough to admit it, there's parts of your life that feel very close and very connected to God and other parts of your life where you're like, I can't see Jesus at all. I can't see Jesus in this family member. I can't see When I see Jesus, I'm talking about seeing his activity or his work. I can't see him in my career. I can't see him in my marriage. I can't see it in my job. I can't see him in my past. I can't see him in my future. And you live in this odd tension of seeing God being very close in one element, in one place, and yet somewhere else we see him very distant or completely absent. And there's this tendency in us, if we're not careful, to think because we see God in one area of our life and not in another area that he's altogether absent. But what this passage introduces to us is that we live in a kingdom that is both fully now and is also fully not yet. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 says it like this in verse 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, Jesus, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the sufferings of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is wild. Writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is king of everything, but right now he doesn't look like it. Jesus is presently the victorious Lord of all of creation, of the entire world, but there's this huge movement called ISIS that's currently blasting the Middle East. Now what happens though, is that the the scripture cautions us in that we can't be overly idealistic, nor can we be overly pessimistic. Because if you've ever been around a Christian that's overly pessimistic, it's kind of scary to be around them right? Like, there are people that particularly only study the book of Revelation, right? Every time they buy a macaroni box, they're like looking for the number 666 on the back, like all the time, like that's their deal, right? They're like, the moon turned this color on this day at this evening, and they're like, well, it's all going down, and, 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 and it's, it always leads to pessimism. You never understand, have you know what I'm talking about? Any person that gets into that never walks away worshiping Jesus more. It's always, this person's the Antichrist, this thing's going to blow up, all the ends, the world's going to end, and then Jesus, 
And it, it's kind of, it, it never leads to a glorification of Jesus. It's always about the Antichrist, never about Jesus Christ. But the scripture doesn't let us go into this pessimism that, oh, the world is just in, you know, going to hell in a handbasket, wherever that phrase came from. It doesn't let us do that. It also doesn't let us live through this overly triumphalistic thing where we're Christians and we're going to take over the world and we're going to be in control. It introduces this idea that we live in a kingdom that is fully now. Is there anyone here this morning that can witness to the fact that you've experienced the grace of God in a real, tangible way presently? That you say, I've experienced God's grace. I'm not just talking about religion where it's just something you apply to your life, but you're saying, I've tasted of what Paul describes the kingdom, righteousness, peace, and joy. I've experienced peace from God. Anyone? Okay, well, good. That was better than the first thing. We've experienced peace in a way that's transcendent, not just that we conjure up, you know, but I'm talking about something supernatural peace. This is what Stephen's experiencing. Stephen has experienced supernatural peace to the point where he is a martyr. And as he's doing that, he's praying for the people that are killing him. If somebody cuts me off in traffic, the last thing I do is pray for them although I have used God's name. It's true. The last thing I do is pray for somebody and somebody cuts me off in traffic. Everyone's like, I can't believe he said he did that. No, I'm just saying what you do. I'm just honest enough to admit it, right? The last thing I do in that moment is begin to pray for the person that cuts me off in traffic, let alone the person that's taking my life. But what about this is that Stephen experienced a knowledge of his Savior so that in his death, in his death, in his death, he's able to pray for people that are taking his life. There's a story from the Moravians. There's this prayer movement in church history in um, Germany. And it was this incredible 100 years of con- consistent, constant prayer happening in Hernhut, Germany. And out of it birthed this missions movement where they began to send missionaries all over the world. And two of these men realized that no one was reaching the West Indies in the slave trade. This is unreal. And they thought the only way we're going to win the slaves is if we sell ourselves into slavery. Think about this. So these two men leave their families, leave their friends, leave everything to get on a slave boat for the hope of having the ability to share the good news with slaves. And on their way onto the boat, they say this simple phrase, may the lamb receive the reward of his suffering. Stephen experienced righteousness, peace, and joy. He experienced a foretaste of the kingdom to the point where he recognized that God's kingdom as ambassadors, as what we're to do to extend the kingdom of God, doesn't come through a triumphalistic approach. As much as it's wonderful when we have righteous leaders in our government, we need to pray for them, absolutely. Stephen participates with the suffering of God. And in his death, look at who he influences. Saul, 
We know later, just chapter two later, Paul the apostle, the cornerstone apostle of the early church, there's a phrase that says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What I want you to say or recognize this this morning is don't miss God in your suffering <laughs> because you don't know that in your suffering is actually the seed to transformation in someone's life. Is that in the very place where you feel that God is absent or distant in this season of life, or God's not interested in, in this, that actually could be the very place that God is most present. That God is most present in that place of suffering. That God is most present. And God actually asks us as Christians to participate in suffering with him. You can probably still make brunch at Denny's if you'd like. That God invites us into suffering. They're, they're, this, is, this is hard to handle, though, because as, as Westerners, we tend to think that religion is something that serves us. Is that religion, at the essence of it, is that Christianity, that's why if you go into Barnes & Noble or whatever, that's the self-help program, self-help section and the Christian section are almost identical Because Jesus becomes a means to an end rather than an end. He's just the means to an end. He is just something, he's the lever that we push, the thing that we pull. But what we see is that the early church experienced and knew a God that was worth dying for. What? Now, don't worry, I heard this, can I tell you a crazy story? That's rhetorical, I'm going to tell you a crazy story. So there's this church this is a true story. I don't know the pastor personally, but I know someone that knows the pastor. And uh, he was trying to put across this point about how people overseas have this, whatever, um, unshaking faith in Christ. And he was doing this to a youth group. And in the middle of the service, he's actually faced lawsuits for this. In the middle of the service, these guys come in with bags and put the bags over the kids' heads and hold guns to them and throw them in the van without getting parents' consent, which no parent would give consent for that anyways. No, no good parent anyways. And they're trying to teach them this lesson. Well, people, the kids started having like traumatic breakdowns, of course, from this. And uh, the pastor wouldn't, wouldn't admit that he was wrong, which is completely crazy. So I just want to tell you, that's not happening today. Okay, that's not the point of this whatsoever. All right. There's no, there's nothing like that. But because my goal here this morning is not to tell you, you need to, you know, go out and die for Christ. That's not the point of this. The point of it is that, is that Jesus tastes death for us. I was driving past a graveyard the other day and I just kind of glanced at it for just a second. I thought to myself, just stay over there for a bit. Just stay over there. Just a little, you know, that's a little too close to home right now. Just, I'm, I mean, I'm 26. It's not like I'm worried about it per se. And I kind of started to rationalize, you know, as long as I don't get some kind of crazy cancer or something or get hit by a thing. And I started to think to myself, okay, I can kind of push death to the side. That fear of death, that fear of what it is. But Hebrews, this passage I just quoted a moment ago, that Jesus is king of everything. The scripture says that he tastes death for everyone. Go back to Hebrews 2, if you will. Verse 9. He's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he would taste death for everyone. Taste death for everyone. What Jesus does for us in the, in, in the cross, 
is that he pulls back the illusion of this world and lays it completely bare for what it is. He pulls back all hostility. He pulls back all of those things that we're trying to find, the thing that we're trying to run from and escape. And we're not in Hollywood, so none of us are getting like Botox and lifting things up that sag and getting rid of other things that sag. And the, we don't even talking about all of those getting rid of hair that grows in different places. Tough crowd. <laughs> That's really not, you know, I can't imagine plastic surgery goes over huge in Scranton. Although I'm sure there's a, there's a market for it. But, but we all have this thing in us that's kind of chasing purpose and chasing value and, and, and chasing whatever it is. There's this, this rat race, this internal thing that's kind of, if I could find it, if I could find it. And really what it comes to is that we just want to find value. And if I, it's, it kind of sounds a little, whatever, bad to say, but just that death is just this real thing. And what Jesus does is he dies in our place and then he inaugurates a kingdom is that he shows us that this world is not all that there is. That's really good news. But be careful. Be careful because, because the, the scary thing is you might fall into a pessimistic side of it. Well, well, this world's not all that it is, so just give up on the world. And that's not what Christianity lets us do. It's not just, well, we're going to someday get to heaven and have a mansion and everything's going to be good if you ever talk to people about heaven, it's just kind of creepy because it basically just sounds like an eternal 4th of July barbecue. Which is fun, but it's not that fun, right? That, that's, it, that's not what the passage lets us. That, that's not what happens because Christianity keeps us from teetering between these two points of triumphalism and pessimism. It doesn't let us get overly pessimistic to say, well, things are just bad. And it also doesn't say we're going to take over the world in that way. What it shows us is that God expands his kingdom, not through swords, but through suffering. That God expands his kingdom, not through pride, but humility. That God expands his kingdom when we surrender ourselves. When we give up ourselves, that's when God's grace is most known. Stephen, at least on this side of eternity, had no clue of what his suffering would bring about. No clue. He had no idea that there's Saul, they dropped the coats, and that just a few years later, he would be planting churches all over the Mediterranean, and today, because of Stephen's death, the impact on Saul, some theologians believe that Saul's conver uh, conversion experience, when the scripture says that the Holy Spirit says, why are you kicking against the goads? Why are you fighting me? A lot of theologians believe that from this moment, that was when he experienced the marking of the Holy Spirit on his life, saying, you're killing my church, you're persecuting me, without exhausting this point any longer. My, my heart's desire is to encourage you in recognizing that Jesus doesn't try to coerce anyone. That's such good news. That religion isn't to try to coerce you. That Jesus is not expanding his kingdom through this authoritarian takeover. And if your taste of religion is like that, if that's been the experience, or you come out of that, or you're trying to engage with people in that, that's not Jesus. 
Jesus doesn't come with a bulldozer to wipe everything clean. He comes as a baby, grows up as a man, and dies on a cross. The way God's kingdom's expanding in your life right now is, is maybe it's in that really victorious, wow, I just got the new job. Everything's great. Well, maybe it's also in the God, where are you? Stephen is the same person just a chapter or two before is told to be doing miracles and healings. Imagine seeing blind eyes, cripples get up, and you're like, God's here! I hope we have a robust enough theology and a a deep enough Christian experience that God is present in miracles and God is present in suffering. It's a shame if we only find God in the good time. It's a really, it's, that's not a gospel that's transferable. If like we can only market to people that are like upper middle class, you know, planning, you got great 401k, we're like, great, the gospel's good for you. You know, we find, let us develop a faith. Come on, please, join, join with me here. Let's develop a theology that's deep enough that when something is not going our way, where we're probably not going to be martyred, but when something's not going our way, we can actually say, I still see Jesus. I still see him. Rather than the moment something goes wrong, we just surrender it and we're like, well, you just did this miracle. Why did you give up on me? God, where are you? I hate you. You're not real. What a, what a flimsy way to approach God when the early church, there's, there's no credence for that. There's no precedent for that. It's amazing how we just kind of take scriptures here, 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 there. We tie these things together and we're like, this is my Christian faith. And then the moment something doesn't go according to what we want, we're like, oh, it's not here. Hebrews 2 says this, that Jesus is king of everything. At the present time, he doesn't look like it. That's really a weird thing. But it gives us hope because in it, it's not that we just sit back and go, well, someday he's going to be king. No, he's presently king. And here's the beautiful part. You and I in our lives have the ability to participate with him so that his kingdom that will fully come at his second coming can presently come in our hearts. Presently comes right now. What this means is that your life and my life should be marked in such a way. (laughs) Come on, I'm preaching to myself here next time somebody cuts me off in traffic. That the first thing I do isn't just bless them and just some religious whatever thing to work up, but, but should be marked in such a way where that I can demonstrate the peace of God in my life in the presence of suffering. Stephen falls asleep. Don't you want to have an anchor for your soul that's that, 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 that's that deep, that's not moved by this world? When something happens, it's like, I'm going to go take a nap. You just lost your job. I'm in the mood for a good, good nap. I just need, to, I need a little bit of rest. Your car breaks down. I mean, listen how trivial these things are. These are complete first world problems, by the way. 
you know? My car breaks down. I, I believe that God is offering us, through this passage this morning, an invitation to enter into a lifestyle where we're not thrown by the waves of this world. <laughs> I'm so tired of living like that. I told Aaron the other day, I was talking with her, I said, honey, I, I don't want my prayer life to be retroactive because every time it's retroactive, I'm always angry at God. Have you noticed that? Something goes wrong and it's always looking like, God, where are you? Never actually trusting that maybe he's doing something in the middle of it. And then after it works out, we're like, oh, God was there. He's always faithful. It's like sooner or later we have to graduate a little bit into this place where we actually trust. And it's not just constantly harping on the fact that we don't like what he's doing. Like, oh, you're such a bad God. And you're like, oh, he's so faithful. I love him. I worship you. And that's like, oh, I'm keep not worshiping you today. This passage shows us that in the presence of suffering that it's possible to see Jesus so clearly, so clearly, that I can experience righteousness, peace, and joy right now. Would you stand with me as we close this morning that... Kenny, would you come? Depending on where this message, you know, hits you today, if you're really on a high right now, you're probably, it's probably, it doesn't do, it won't do much for your heart because it's like, eh, things are pretty good. Uh, Let me me encourage you that the time to focus on your heart and and the foundation of who you are is, is not when things are going really bad. As a pastor, you, you, you run into a, a lot of unique situations. And, and most of the time, it's people in crisis trying to figure out where's God. And it is incredibly difficult to help them in the middle of crisis. It's like the house is burning down and in the middle of it, it's like, okay, let's pack our bags for vacation. It's like, wrong time. There it is. I'm kidding. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that, that E minor always gets me there. Um, <laughs> it's, as Christians, we should settle our hearts in him. And if, if, if every, you know, my mom was just in the intensive care unit I'm in Arizona, I'm getting these texts that mom's in the ICU, she's got swelling on the brain, she's got blah, 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 blah. And I'm, you know, I'm trying to figure out what is this? People are calling me all over the place. And just a week, maybe two weeks ago, I told Aaron, I said, honey, the next time something goes wrong, I'm making a commitment and I need you make a, a commitment to me. As a couple, we're not gonna let this thing rip us up and down and then on the other side of it, if it works out, be like, oh, great, God was there. We're, but through it, we're going we're gonna to choose. How many know that we have to choose? you got to choose. You do have a choice. We have a choice in the middle of it to go, I'm going to find peace. 
I'm going to find peace. I'm not a neurosurgeon, although I know some of you have thought that coming in here today. But there's this incredible thing with the brain that was a joke for those that are a little slower than the rest of us. (laughs) Some people are like, I'm not sure about that. That was a joke. There's this thing called neuroplasticity. This is amazing that that the brain has the ability to, over time, string together enough decisions where it's easier to think one way than the other. That's why when you get around negative people, they're always negative. Always. It's like, it's a beautiful day outside. Could it be a little bit better? There's some clouds in the sky. You know what I mean? They're always... And their brain actually, over time, creates these patterns of negativity over and over and over. And then positive people are more positive. What... What the scripture tells us is that we have, in Romans 12, the ability to renew our minds after the knowledge of God's will. So that's something that we have to fight for, something that we choose. It's not something that just magically comes to us. I'm so glad it doesn't just magically come because I haven't got it yet. But we consciously choose to say, God, I'm surrendering. God, I'm choosing peace. I'm choosing joy. This morning... Would you choose that? Would you choose that? Whatever situation in life right now, family, brother, spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever, that's got things are away and everything, oh God, where are you? He's right here. And if we could just see, you know, beyond this world, just like Stephen, we would say, I see Jesus. And if we would see him, we'd go, you know what? I think I could fall asleep here. (laughs) I see him. I think I feel at rest right here. Let's pray. Father, today we want to enter your rest. And I, I know, I know, Lord, there's real situations here that are difficult. Where we just came off a high of seeing miracles and signs and wonders and then here we are, there's people screaming and running at us and we can't see you or feel you or find you or any of that. But Jesus, you're present in our midst this morning and and we thank you that the same God of miracles is the same God of suffering. And thank you, Jesus, that you expand your kingdom not only through miracles you do, but you also expand it through suffering. And Paul bids us to join in the fellowship, the sharing of your sufferings. Jesus, we... We want to be mature Christians. We, we don't want you just as a means to an end. We want you to be the end. So we surrender ourselves and we choose this morning. We choose, we choose, we choose, we choose to renew our minds and to find our balance in you.